When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why a metaverse? Well, because in a digital metaverse environment, people are more open, people are more transparent, people are more likely to feel like they have psychological safety in order to engage, and it's a much more inclusive place for women. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoff, and you're listening to 97% Effective. In my previous episode, I spoke with Lisa Salute, founder and general partner at R3I Capital, about how she moved into venture capital and how she is connecting founders to smart capital so they avoid the vulture capital that often seeks to take advantage of them. In our conversation, we covered ways that women can break through into venture capital, how to be a giver without getting taken advantage of, and building trust in virtual environments. We also looked at ways to detect BS in venture firms. In this continuation episode, Lisa describes her personal experience breaking through as a woman in tech and venture, leveraging the power of networks, community, and technology. We start by discussing how Lisa built power through community building, then cover how she manages the massive demands on her time, and end with challenging the conventional wisdom in the venture capital industry. Hope you enjoy the episode. I want to talk about this part where, you know, you said you didn't follow a traditional path. You created it yourself. You had to flip things around. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, what innovators do. They break the rules. They find ways to to make things happen. And what what I really feel from, you know, knowing you and looking at your work is that you build immense power from building community, and you've created or you've affiliated and created ecosystems that we've alluded to. So I would love it if you could share, you know, the steps or principles you followed, because it's easy to say it's actually pretty hard to do, or, or maybe not, maybe you've got the, the keys there, about this part about community building. You know, and I know there's a couple examples with She Loves Tech and, and many other things you've done, yeah. but just to talk about how do you become and build that community? Yeah, communities are there for a reason. 
right? So what is the experience archetypes that need to be experienced in this community? And just take your average alumni. Everyone's been to a university. um, And so you have an experience as an alumni of your academic institution. And that is you want to be a co-creator in your community. You want to have a sense of belonging in your community. You want to be made smarter in your community. Um, They're the three classic archetypes that we see in an alumni community. Um, And I used to sit on the board of Australian Alumni Singapore, which is 47 Australian university alumni under one roof. And that was the common glue that bound all these different academic institutions with all these different cultures. It bound those alumni together to want to be in the same place and to want to build relationships with one another. Economic development is really driven by people-to-people ties. People-to-people ties are built within communities. I think the second thing is give them a place to live. Now, in the old days, we used to be always physically bound. Most executives, I come from Singapore, would be away 80% of the year. Horrific if you're a parent, but that was just the way it was done. I was delighted when COVID came because the only real upside is we didn't need to travel anymore. And we kind of went through this stage in the world of great global immobility physically, but not digitally. I would argue we went through a great period of travel as virtual participants in a global economy. And what that meant is that many people reduced the guards that they had had up in all these physical meetings. People in a virtual environment were more open with what they needed, um, how they needed to have whatever it was they needed, what they needed to do to get what they needed, um, and in what time frame. So all of a sudden, people were a lot more direct than they were previously because you had to be direct because you only had a finite 30-minute Zoom call. And in that 30 minutes, the other person, you had to buy more time with whatever that interaction was. It wasn't a matter of physically, naturally getting an outcome. Every time you meet someone, you're buying more time. And so the question is, is what is going to get you that opportunity to have more time with the person that you want to be doing business with? And I think people's realization and cultural transformation that one, it was okay to work in a digital environment. Two, it was okay to cross borders without physically having met the person before and transact business um, because they were forced to. And three, changing policies and protocols to enable them to be able to operate in that way. That was the last invention, the last fundamental point, because for many allocators across the world, you couldn't allocate unless you'd physically been to that person's office and you'd physically interrogated that team. Now, all of that was having to be happened uh, virtually. And the last thing I would add is it really served minorities and females well. Because when you have to give someone a place to live, it used to be co-working spaces, right? But that went out of the norm with COVID. And so now I've built a seven-floor metaverse. And why a metaverse? Well, because in a digital metaverse environment, people are more open, people are more transparent, people are more likely to feel like they have psychological safety in order to engage And it's a much more inclusive place for women. But the other reason is because of global geopolitics. We've never lived in a more complicated time. I'm in the business of deep tech. I have one mission, 
and that's to keep my researchers and my founders safe. And so now they live in the metaverse. Everyone we invest in gets an office in the metaverse to house their team. No one needs to know where they live. No one needs to show up on their front door unless they are invited. And that is an absolutely huge transformation for most founders. Not only that, we can reduce the rent by $2 million a year. That helps. <laughs> and metaverse, you mean like a virtual space office that they're connecting in and interacting? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So we've got we've got a co-working space. We've got virtual offices. We have our own, of course, private office. We have an, a massive expo stand where we have, you can host a rock concert and you've got all the expo stands where people can showcase what they have. We have a TEDx style auditorium. We've got a, an entire floor dedicated to women that has places to work, places to play and places to engage and bring large audiences in and share. So we tried to build a home that was welcoming, conducive, and once again, going back to the point, building in that psychological safety within the community. What we also did is we made it a rule that you have to stick a badge of your country behind your head because in a room of a 1,000 avatars, and Michael, hypothetically, you're based in the US, I'm based in Luxembourg, you want to do business in those locations, you just look for the, the flag across the room and you can walk up and have a conversation. Changes the game. So I want to ask this part around technology, and you've, you've given a great example of how this is, can be harnessed to bring people together, to increase access. There's also this other part of technology where it's fracturing people's time, right? Where, and this is just a very practical question because you are out there a lot. You have your day job you know, to your, your limited partners, to your companies. You do so many things, you're also kind of out there building the network, you know, through social media and those avenues. How do you practically manage that? Or how even do entrepreneurs should be thinking about that? Because a lot of this is, you do need to be focused <laughs> to get the things you need done. And a lot of people are kind of abandoning parts of social media or technology because they feel it's fracturing their time. Is yeah. a practical advice there? <laughs> yeah, I think the first thing that I did was I downloaded an app called Rescue Time. It's really good. It basically tells you where you spend your time because you don't know because you're going about your day, right? True. I can tell you that the total work I logged in a single week was 94 hours and eight minutes. I don't think that's your average week. I think most people probably do 40. I did 94 hours and eight minutes exactly. And I can tell you exactly when was my focus work, how many of those hours I spent on communication, how much of that time I spent on social media. It breaks it down right to the ends and it tells you exactly when is your best time for productivity. Um, mine is between 12 a.m. and 3 a.m. in the morning. Now, I'm a mother. I work from home in my office. I've got two beautiful kids. Is it no wonder I find the dead quiet of night the most productive time? I think tools like that technology can empower you because now you know where you spend your time. You can be a lot smarter. I think the second thing is there is a wonderful, I think it's an eight-minute video by Brendan Bouchard, who I'm just such a huge fan of. It's how do millionaires spend their day? And that notion of the first thing most people do when they get out of bed after they've had their breakfast and done their sport is they open their email where you are instantly a slave to everybody else in your community. 
And instead, what I do every morning is I write down, I've got a few major goals that I'm trying to hit, right? I'm trying to do first close on the fund. I'm trying to make sure that my founders close their seed rounds. I'm trying to make sure that I've lined up the investors for Series A. I'm trying to finalize our accelerators. I've got a lot on, no doubt, all to the same vision, which is our accelerators are where we smartly source, select, and due diligence the companies that we're going to invest in. So the first thing is, is make sure that the things you're spending your time on are holistically getting you to the end goal. And when somebody asks for your time, remember I said that usually you're buying somebody's time, make sure that it has some alignment with your ultimate objective. I open two hours of my week, 3 p.m. till 5 p.m. on a Friday for founders where anyone can walk in the door. So I've also segmented my week such that I do leave an opportunity window for new and exciting and unplanned things, but the rest of my week is absolutely dedicated to the things that I need to get done. And I think the other last thing is, clearly, as a woman who worked 94 hours last week, it's very easy to not have work-life balance, especially if, like me, you're at the end of a marathon and you've seen the home straight, you're almost there, and you don't want to give up before you pass that finish line, which for me is first close and finally a two-week break with my family. So have that upside, that family-driven upside or whatever it is that brings you joy sitting on the other side of the fence so you've A, got something to look forward to, Set the expectations so you get the psychological safety from your family to be able to do the things you need to get the job done because sometimes you got to travel. Sometimes you can't put that child to bed because you have to have that meeting at that specific time. The last thing I learned is there's nine minutes of the day that psychologically transform your family's life. The first three minutes when your child gets out of bed the first three minutes when they get home from school and the last three minutes before they go to sleep. I never miss those nine minutes. I mean, obviously I spend a lot more time than nine minutes with my family on a daily basis, but it's it's the principle, right? I'm there in the morning, even if I'm sitting on my laptop beside them at breakfast, I'm there when they get home from school because I work from home and I'm there at night and I've just blocked out those slots in my diary. And of course, I've slotted in my husband uh, as part of that journey. And I think the last thing is have a family fun day that is related to your work. Nobody knows what I do. Years later, decades later, my parents still don't know what I do for a living. It's (laughs) She does everything. What does she do? Find a way that you can integrate your work and your life together in a way that people can consume it and understand it. Um, I used to do a lot of work in robotics, so I bought a little robot for my children and shared Mummy Works on Robots. You know, simple things like that. I started a book club with my kids online because I said, Mummy does a lot of work online. Let me show you what that delivers. And I showed them how to build a little community. My daughter was so excited, Michael. She had six more people sign up to her book reading YouTube channel. And there's families that are now signed on to listen to the books that we read together. So you've got to find ways to bring joy that include some of the aspects of your work that help them understand what you do. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoff. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. 
Now, back to our interview. So we don't need to go look at how millionaires spend the time. We're going to bottle that up because the way you're spending your time is a, is just a masterclass in focus. And, you know, to be perfectly frank, women have it much harder. Mothers have it much harder. And, and I think you've just laid out there some very practical things that we should be paying attention to that increase our focus, increase our impact, and the part about work-life balance. So thank you <laughs> for that. Lisa. And talking about women founders and CEOs, as you've observed and worked with many, and and we've touched a lot on this, so is there anything here you would add in terms of particular things that you find, you know, they are becoming more common? We see many more of them leading companies, so it's not like 10, 20 years ago. There's a still long way to go, but particular things for those out there who are listening, you need to pay attention to this, and we're talking to women here, not, not men, or particular things that they're doing really well that every other group should be looking and, and learning from. Anything that you would highlight here that we haven't spoken about already? Yeah, we often go to these training camps and we put ultimate trust in those that educate us. And we're educators, Michael. Um, as educators, we have to be triangulated too. So I went to a few accelerator boot camps because I didn't know how to be a venture capitalist. I had to go and learn, right? And how to, where do you go to learn? You go to school. And so I signed up to VC Labs. I signed up to Coolwater Capital. I signed up to every class I caught in, women VC communities. Um, those classes, for the most part, were led by men, except for women VC. And I was told that I needed to raise a $10 million fund to get out the gate. And, you know, I look around the newspapers and everyone's raising 50 and 150 and 350. And I'm like, why do I have to raise 10? I've got a $100 million strategy here, right? I'm cross-border, I'm deep tech, we're venture building. It takes a lot of muscle to do what we do. And it takes a lot of super smart muscle to do what we do. And you can't do that on the sweat of an oily rag sustainably forever doesn't work. And so 10 million is going to buy me no management fees to get the job done. And I want to be sustainable. I don't just want to be sustainable. I want to be successful. I want to deliver a return on investment to my investors and multiply that impact, right? And so it was so amazing because there is a smart reason why everybody says build the first fund small. Statistically, it's because you've got a 15% likelihood of a 5x return if you have a small fund that delivers small checks in a much more diversified way. And that magic number is 50. And it's because of something in venture called the power law. But let me just say, but 1 million is the maximum check size if you're taking 10% concentration in a $10 million fund. That's what these families give to their children next-gens to take to Kairetsu to play with on the weekend. That's not a serious investment check, really, for any family. Families have a lot of money to put to work. It's $10 million, It's $50 million, It's $100 million. And I was given an incredible opportunity to make an investment in an asset that everybody would want to get their hands on. And I picked up the phone and immediately on my desk had 190 million in letters of intent. Let me say that number again, 190 million. 
And I demonstrated that we had exclusive, unique access, which is what you want your venture capital firm to have, that we were able to make it available to our families in a way that they would want to consume it, and that it was an asset that could give multi-generational returns to this family. And what was fascinating for me is that when we're talking about these types and these are growth equity assets, actually people weren't torn up about data rooms. They weren't torn up about meeting the founders. They didn't need 4,000 yards of information in order to make that decision. They were just carving out $100 million checks or $10 million checks like that because they wanted to invest in the domain. They knew that it was a good opportunity and they wanted to be a part of it. I had a hard look at myself with my team and said, why are we raising 10 million, right? Let's go out and raise that 100 million. I had been also told that no one backs a solo GP. Solo GPs are more common than you imagine, increasingly common. And that's because, Michael, you met a great founder down the road. They were investing in climate tech, which you are passionate about. And you knew that you could just ask a few of your executive colleagues to bundle in some money with you and you could fund that founder. It was the right thing to do. It was a great opportunity. And you knew that that was going to deliver a return because you, Michael, had unique capability with your network to add value to the asset. It's a classic, great investment opportunity. Well, it just so happens that there's more time spent getting divorced than there is getting married in venture. And so when I went to my law firm and said, should I consider just taking on a co-GP just to get rid of that key woman risk? They said, absolutely not. Don't do that because I spend our whole time unbundling these organizations. But, you know, because I'm a woman and because we raise only 1% of the capital, I didn't want to double down on the discrimination. And I wanted to go out there and get started as fast as I could because every day I'm delaying is us not deploying capital into the sustainable development goals. And we have a lot of capital in the world that we need to deploy in order to transform our world for livability, not just impact, right? Um, so we don't have time on our hands. So it was interesting. I went out there and I started dating other VC firms. And then I realized I was going to do 99% of the work and give away 50% of the economics. And that didn't make sense. And I wouldn't as the GP, get to do the deals that we needed to get done because they just didn't have the technical or domain knowledge that we have in order to be able to make the same decision. The second is I went over to the real estate side when COVID first hit because they were being decimated and they had all these institutional investors and I thought, wow, what an easy way to get capital. They need to desperately diversify. I'm here at the right time. Until they said, well, you know, little Johnny at the golf club, he's got a startup. And, you know, I'd really appreciate it if you could carve out some money to him. Michael, I'm never doing those deals, ever. Um, so I just didn't find the right fit. But here I am, two and a half years later, and I finally met who I think is the right big brother. And he's a big brother who has deployed $2 billion in capital, in venture capital, in fund of funds, in emerging markets all over the world. Totally understand what I was doing is just a wonderful human because, you know, I'm a collector of great human beings and who is purpose-driven. Um, and so now we're, you know, I'm here to do five funds and deliver a billion dollars into deep tech and impact. And now 
I have a multi-fund manager strategy. Otherwise, as a single GP, I have to wait another 10 years before we're out there raising fund number two and closing it, right? So now I have an opportunity to just stack up great examples of venture capital technicians and do that one fund at a time much more rapidly. If there was one question that I, that I, I didn't ask or we should have asked in, in this particular podcast, what would it be? And, and go ahead and answer it because I know it's going to be a good question coming from you. So I believe that we have this massing middle of capital, right? This massing middle of capital that is just unserved. There are so many incredible emerging managers who for the past decade have demonstrated that emerging managers outperform fund three managers. But our policies haven't changed, Michael. So the institutionals really can't come in until fund three, even though the performance is at fund one. So how can we address this missing middle? I think the best thing that we could all be thinking about as business owners and as stewards of financial capital for our organizations is how do we deliver diversification from our core business through adopting investments in emerging technologies that are going to transform our product roadmap, that are going to give us access to new markets, perhaps even more lucrative markets than our traditional business? And how can we do that off balance sheet? As soon as people start investing off balance sheet, we will see a great unlocking of capital in order to get this planet where it needs to get for the sustainable development goals. And I think I would like everybody to ask themselves, how do we unlock that capital on our balance sheet in order to achieve that? Every time I meet you, every time we talk together, there is both inspiration and I become more optimistic about our future because there is plenty to be pessimistic. You know, many much of my career is in Asia, some of the direction that certain countries are going, I'm not particularly excited about. We could talk about how deep tech has the, the dark side. It is great to see how you are leveraging things to make sure it gets used for good and in a responsible way. Thank you for your time here. I will have show notes and there'll be lots of very interesting links of things that you have brought up here. How do people best reach you? see your work, invest with you, <laughs> get funded by you? I think the first thing is just go to my LinkedIn and just connect to me on LinkedIn and say g'day. That's the best way. You can find a link there if you want to submit your company for investment. Um, most of all, if you're an allocator, give me a call. I'm closing a fund. Very exciting. Lisa, thank you so much for your time and carry on. Crush it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Michael. As we say it, She Loves Tech. Let's build tomorrow together. Let's do that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com That's www.changwinderoth.com
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.